Shente, yes. Shu Ta and Shente, both. Your injunction to be good and yet to live was a thunderbolt. It has torn me in two, and I can't tell how it was, but to be good to others and myself at the same time. I could not do it. Your world is not an easy one, illustrious ones. When we extend our hand to a beggar, he tears it off for us. When we help the lost, we are lost ourselves. And so, since not to eat is to die, who can long refuse to be bad? As I lay prostrate beneath the weight of good intentions, ruin stared me in the face. It was when I was unjust that I ate good meat and hobnobbed with the mighty. Why? Why are bad deeds rewarded and good ones punished? I enjoyed giving. I truly wished to be the angel of the slums, but washed by a foster mother in the water of a gutter, I developed a sharp eye. The time came when pity was a thorn in my side, and later, when kind words turned to ashes in my mouth and anger took over, I became a wolf. Find me guilty then, illustrious ones, but know, all that I have done, I did to help my neighbor, to love my lover, and to keep my little one from want. For your great godly deeds, I was too poor, too small. Ladies and gentlemen, don't be angry, please. We know the play is still in need of mending. A golden legend floated on the breeze, the breeze dropped and we got a bitter ending. Being dependent on your approbation, we wished, alas, our work might be commended. We're disappointed too, with consternation. We see the curtains close, the plot unended. In your opinion then, what's to be done? change human nature or the world well which believe in bigger better gods or none how can we mortals be both good and rich the right way out of the calamity you must find for yourselves ponder my friends how man with man may live in amity and good men women also reach good ends there must there must be some end that would fit ladies and gentlemen help us look for it like how to get out of the, the sort of dilemma of of being both good and um, surviving. Um, but, th- but they're asking the audience to make that judgment. I don't know if it's a literal judgment that's being asked for as so much as an activation of the audience to feel implicated by the same tension because it may be an irresolvable judgment in the face of capitalism, right? Uh, to be a good person and to take in the context of how the gods have articulated it and to uh, take care of the self. Yeah, that's sort of why one of the reasons why I chose this translation was it says what is to be done, which has like, well, how do we fix this? Like, how, how do we go beyond this tension? that's created by capitalism. It's sort of weird to start with the ending and yet also feels somewhat perfectly Brechtian in its own way. Solidarity Collective, temporally distorting shit for three years. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We're here talking about good person 
of Sichuan by Bertolt Brecht. And I guess the first question to probably get out of the way is, why are some editions or translations called the good woman, and why are some called the good person? I mean, Shente uh, sort of embodies two people, um, her cousin and herself, and they're like, her cousin's very, like, pragmatic and direct and um, interested in surviving, I guess. He's kind of a kind of a terrible person, as that turns out, but um, and Shente is is very generous and compassionate. Um, yeah, they both kind of, the actual cousin and her playing her cousin kind of embody, and her, of course, embody that struggle between of what does it mean to be good in a capitalist society. And I, I read, I can't remember where, but in one of my pieces of research that one of the early translations was the good man of Sheshwa hmm. also. And I think that Shente's transformation into her masculine cousin, uh, I think you are correct, Sean, is it, it's this sort of when you say the good person, it sort of makes you wonder which version or which manifestation of this character is the good person. Whereas when you identify the gender of the person, it might imply to the audience maybe something more direct about the argument and who is sort of upholding the best morality in the face of the structural uh, system that they're in. Right. Because I think they're both Im impossible, like uh, Shueta, uh, Shente as Shueta sort of like tries to get better, better dwellings for her workers, um, which is maybe jumping ahead of ourselves, but like donates to charity, but is a terrible exploiter. And Shente sort of like wants to give the the two hundred silver dollars um, from the old couple to everyone, and is uh, putting herself out of business, and like will eventually lead to her own personal like dissolution or whatever. Mm -hmm. We could we could kind of go back to the beginning and sort of say how how it all begins. Uh, and uh, a water seller named Wang is awaiting the gods at the edge of the city, uh, just a few gods at the edge of the city that he hears rumor uh, are going to come. I sell water here in the city of Sichuan. It isn't easy. When water is scarce, I have long distances to go in search of it. And when it is plentiful, I have no income. But in our part of the world, there's nothing unusual about poverty. Many people think only the gods can save the situation. And I hear from a cattle merchant who travels a lot that some of the highest gods are on their way here at this very moment. Informed sources have it that heaven is quite disturbed at all the complaining. I've been coming out here to the city gates for three days now to bid these gods welcome. I want to be the first to greet them. Let's see. What about those fellows over there? Uh, no, they work. And that one there has ink on his fingers. He's no god. He must be a clerk, maybe from the cement factory. Those two are another story. They look as though they'd like to beat you? The gods don't need to beat you, do they? What about those three? Old-fashioned clothes, dust on their feet. They must be gods. Do with me what you will, illustrious ones. 
and the, the gods arrive and guess what? They're, they're tired. They're tired gods. And they're also discouraged. They've been looking for good humans and haven't been able to find any. That question then is sort of thrust at the very beginning of the, of the play. Uh, and in fact, they can't find anyone even who's going to take them in uh, until right. uh, uh, be- because we all suck. And uh, but uh, Shente does not suck. And Shente uh, offers to take them in. Um, but Shente is a person of, of ill repute, right, is, uh, is a, a prostitute. But she chooses to take them in for a small fee. I think she, she or she maybe wasn't going, I don't remember the specifics, she's going to charge them at all. And then the gods choose to reward her with a large sum of coinage mm-hmm. uh, above and beyond what would have been required to pay for their st- short stay. Right, enough to buy a, a like small tobacco store and a, a stock of, of tobacco. Um, but... The money is not just a reward, it is also a test. Mm. Uh, And so this sent me on a little bit of an excursion about the the different um, stories of the gods testing people and the way that they test people. And uh, so it reminded me somewhat of the Book of Job uh, as well as the movie Trading Places, which in which instead of two evil gods uh, fucking with people's lives to see who's good and who's bad, um, it's two uh, rich uh, Wall Street um, speculators uh, making a bet, like a $5 bet or something, or a dollar bet, I think. Um, but again, fucking with people's lives over money. So I think it's, it's an interesting kind of theme um, and in some ways, kind of a way to critique power uh, uh, as well. And I think there's other places in, in, in good, good Person where the gods are kind of critiqued themselves as being these sort of shady, uh, powerful uh, characters. They're not really gods. They're actually just, uh, just rich, uh, bad people. Yeah, it's kind of funny how, how they're like, oh, we just need to find a good person. That's our one thing we need, and otherwise we're out. Like... You're good. Deal with it. Like, all right, we're got, we're done. Like, our task is done. We're gonna leave you with the, with whatever. You're probably strong enough to handle it. I I feel like they're even kind of whiny about it. <laughs> like, are we ever gonna find a good person? Is it even possible? Which reveals some of the impossibilities of how uh, that Shente encounters with this money about how to enact the the qualitative goodness that they are inviting the audience to think about, but through the generosity slash production process of this Mm. particular sex worker. And they kind of break down when she calls them out at the end in the monologue, they, they sort of uh, are, you know, kind of stumbling uh, around their words and, and, uh, and, and are placed on the defensive in this really kind of pathetic way. So they're, yeah, they, they're very much like, like rich people who um, will whine and break down at the slightest sign of inconvenience or 
uh, of people not uh, not giving them everything they want. It's kind of a like I, I haven't seen it actually produced, but the the end scene where they're kind of like slowly being lifted out of the scene while Shantae is like, no, this doesn't this isn't like possible. This is a like this is an impossible task you've given me. And they're just kind of like speaking in platitudes and <laughs> <laughs> so the gods testing people is a great epic theater premise and uh but in you know in this case uh as as i think is is in the case of some other representations uh, the gods are also sort of stand-ins for powerful people that um, arbitrarily kind of mess around uh, with other people's lives um Anyway, uh, so as we said, Shantae gets a, a tobacco shop, uh, but Shantae is too generous. Um, and that creates hangers-on, kind of a weird take on idleness uh, coming from Brecht, but uh, we don't, you know, don't have to go there. Shantae decides to become an invented male cousin. She falls in love with a pilot. Um, she buys him water, even buys water from Wang for the pilot even though it's just been raining and sort of her, her attempt uh, to, to marry the pilot falls apart because of money. She owes this old couple money because she needed to, to get her, her lover a job in Beijing and also to fix Wang's hand and also um, to provide charity to the various like, Hangers on, as you said. I'm thinking not just about epic theater, which is about, you know, dropping a lot of the pretenses around traditional monologic theater. But I think that this transformation that she goes through is almost like watching the alienation effect in action, mm-hmm. where the the characters is sort of denaturalizing sort of the feminine uh, goodness in a way that has produced some of the kinds of dynamics that you're describing, the sort of the, the fiancé pilot and the kind of taking, getting taken advantage of in some of the business decisions that get made around the tobacco shop. And then when she transforms into this masculine cousin, uh, suddenly is is hyper successful, uh, which is is interesting because that feels in some ways like a quote unquote like natural masculine trait uh, at this sort of m- moment in time. However, it is this the act of a woman playing that man. And that sort of making it as uh, making it somewhat artificial, the way that the gender identity affects their ability to interact with the economic structure. And so I often I also have not seen this staged and I have often wondered what gendered person or how they might how the casting of this particular character might go down and how that would impact the audience's interpretation. So if it is a uh, male-identified or masculine-identified actor that plays both characters, the inhabiting Shente's failure uh, might read one way, whereas a feminine or female-identified actress inhabiting Shuta's 
uh, success might be read in a different way. So I, I, I don't I wonder about that kind of interplay and, and maybe that is related to also to the the ways that the title, right, whether it's good woman or good man or good person, like kind of shifts the way that you might think of who is implicated in the morality question. Good. That's interesting because I only have thought about a, a, a woman a, a woman identified person playing uh, both parts um, and uh, I picture Shuita uh, as the kind of exaggerated character um, exaggerated masculine in, in, character. In, yeah that that that, mm-hmm. that masculinity is exaggerated as part of the you know and obviously so in a way that you know is is obvious to the audience and presumably that the char- the other characters it is not obvious uh, but that's what i see and i actually even have like uh, actor friends female actor friends in mind who i would go oh you know my friend laura could play uh you know could play this role for example mm-hmm. i definitely like landed i don't know what maybe that says more about me than about uh contemporary you know Brecht, brechtian theater but I, I definitely landed squarely in the. This is a going to be a female impersonating a, a male. It's kind of interesting because it is so like gendered in the sense that um, Chen Tei's suitors, both um, Yang Sun and Shu uh, Fa Shu Fu, um, they both like want something from her. They both like are super manipulative. Um, Yang Sun the the broke pilot sort of um in the tobacco factory betrays his fellow workers to become the foreman and chu fu sort of like breaks uh the water seller wang's hand and then is is super sentimental about um about shente's charity so they're both hypocrites and they both want something from her and they're both like super invested in her. The only way she can actually engage with them, the only way she like relates to Shu Fu and uh, Yang Sun is as a man, uh, Shui Ta, as a business person. I think your, your read is not wrong, Matt, or, or problematic. Like if, if one of the primary reasons he used the alienation effect was to it's this sort of idea of like making something strange uh that sort of female body inhabiting these kind of characters and kind of having these somewhat hypocritical interactions makes the artificiality or the artifice of masculinity more visible through its strangeness in the body that it is, uh, that has, or how it's been, in, how it's being inhabited in that body, and that makes me think about that short story that I read called "The Job," where there is a woman whose husband dies on his way to get uh, trained for this new job, and rather than let that new job just disappear with all of the money that it would bring for their poor family she chooses to inhabit his identity and become the night watchman at this factory. And in that short story, 
Brecht does some pretty specific description about the way she inhabits the suit or the way she learns how to take on his walk and sit like a man and drink beer and play cards. And I think that it's that same desire to sort of reveal the artifice of masculinity and make it strange to see it on this particular body. Um, and in, in that particular story, he's very, Brecht is very direct and says that this is all part of the production process. Right? The production mm-hmm. of this masculine person or identity, job, all of that uh, is related to production. Yeah, I think he's he's very clear to, um, at the end he says, what should change, the world or human nature? And I think he comes down very strongly that your positionality in the world is super influential on your on your nature as a person on your because gente like just completely transforms um by becoming the the owner of this tobacco factory and like disciplining her workers and embodying a, a masculine persona and yeah I, I think it's it's incredible how he makes these characters transform based on their position in society yeah such a a kind of a faithful rendering of 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 historical materialism i think to get back to the sort of climactic uh conflictual end of the plot uh one of the employees hears shente crying um when she has is the when the the ruse or the story is that she's out of town, uh, that she's out of town and, Sh- and Shuita has, has taken over the, or has, is running the, running the factory. So the employee goes in to where the, they hear Shente crying, but they only see Shuita. This creates, uh, this employee, uh, you know, says where, you know, where is, uh, Shente and then, um, goes to the police or something like that and, uh, so Shuita is arrested for either hiding or murdering, kidnapping or murder uh, of Shente. Well, there's some there's some like interesting, like the police officer, the the gods. First of all, the gods are uh, impersonate the judge. They badly forge some documents, I think, and and the judge is incapacitated because he ate a fat duck that. Um, that Shweta actually sent. <laughs> so she tried to bribe the judge and yeah. Anyway, um, it's during the, during the trial, like the police officer is like whispering to the gods, like, Oh, this person's well-connected and like, a, a, giving them kind of a, a play by play or sort of a filtration of right. how they should perceive the various witnesses yeah. and, these people are the scum of the of the scum, the scum of the neighborhood. Um, this person's disreputable, the water seller or whatever. And then I guess, uh, and eventually, um, things don't look good for Shuita because he does he does not have he does not have an explanation for this disappearance or why someone heard Shente's voice, and so Shuita then asks the judges or gods to clear the court um, because he has a confession to make. And the as people are being escorted out of the court, there's muttering and 
and at least one person seems like they're in the know, uh, and like because kind of says to the judges, "You're in for a surprise." Um, but uh, but other people are like, "Well, this is it for good old uh, Shuita uh, is definitely going up the river uh, for this." Um, and so the courtroom is cleared, and then um, the the big reveal, Deus ex machina style. Uh, everything, the big reveal solves everything. And, uh, and, but, you know, then there's this confrontation, um, with the gods because then the question becomes, well, are you good or what, what's going on there? Yeah. I was going to say, it's pretty bold to say that the big reveal solves everything because I think it reveals the, the impossible, uh, tension that the gods have left this person in. And we are then prompted with, uh, as an audience or as a reader, with that same question about, is it possible to be a good person with uh, this within this economic system, with this money, in these ways? And how, how might one, regardless of their gender or the amount of power that they have, ever resolve those questions in a very Brechtian way. It's not, we are not given a solution, right? We are, mm-hmm. we are given more of the question. And well, yeah, literally given like the question is tossed into the, into the audience. Do you think that that's, it feels like before we started recording, when we were talking about that, you, maybe I mis misinterpreted uh, you, Alexis, but you seemed to feel like it wasn't necessarily an authentic inviting the audience in to participate. So it wasn't like necessarily audience, you know, the, the, the kind of breakdown between the, uh, the performers and the audience that we've talked about in, in other contexts with Brecht and Bowell and others. Yeah. I do, I do not read this as a Bowellian talk back where there is an actual interest in activating the audience to be the character and make a different choice. Although that might be how some people relate to this story. Uh, I think it is, this epilogue is more like a rhetorical question and is not easily, if at all answerable after watching this particular play, or at least you have to kind of grapple with the multiplicity of uh, goodness, even just like the way you were describing the gods, describing the gods in the courtroom, uh, kind of taking over and impersonating the judges, like the gods aren't necessarily good, right? There is this kind of uh, denaturalization of the almighty, all wonderful Mm -hmm. God figure. And that, also, just even the rhetorical question itself from a meta perspective could be put under examination as well. Uh, should, should, how should we receive a question like this from maybe not an unreliable narrator, but from a problematic character set? Well, I find it inexcusable, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> because if I was teaching speech and... Uh, my students were uh, to give a speech where they took a position on something and instead they uh, threw at me a bunch of uh, ambiguous um, nonsense and then said, what do you think? I would 
advise them that what do you think is not a really good way to end a speech. So that's my take, and I'm sticking to it. Maybe not. I think there's sort of like a like maybe I'm reaching here, but like what communism or whatever Brecht thought was the solution to this is not like some definite like thing where everything is written down and we just have to achieve this. It's based on like people coming together and figuring out these problems together in a non-hierarchical way and and just sort of building towards it as a group um, and figuring things out together. I don't know. Yes. Sure. I, I really agree with that because to, to me, the asking of the rhetorical question is a kind of negotiation. Because I don't think this is a speech in a speech class. This is a piece of political theater designed to challenge people's perspectives on their the things that they take for granted in their everyday lives and their own self-satisfaction about being a good person. And so to end on that question is to make everybody in the audience wonder not just what is a good person but am i a good person and i find great political value in that and i would in a speech class too because i'm that kind of teacher Mm -hmm. (laughs) well i'm glad that you refuted my very effective and well-constructed metaphor i wanted to ask because uh, at the end of this segment we're going to hear we will hear uh, a, rec- a recording of Alexis reading the short story, The Job by Brecht, in which the female character dresses up as her dead husband in order to take a job out of economic necessity. And we talked the other night about the obvious parallels going on here. But I mean, even deeper than that is this idea of you know, so much of this work uh, uh, being about the roles that we are supposed to assume in order to survive or that we're forced to assume in order to survive and that um, this is being presented as doing something out of necessity. And it, but it is also, uh, you know, in each of these cases is presented as also a gender switch that's going on and gender perform performance that's going on. I find it curious that in both The Good Woman and in the short story, The Job, they're both trying to trans women trying to inhabit a masculine identity and hiding behind it, having to uh, cover over them something about themselves in order to access power and economic power in particular, but also certain kinds of social power. They, uh, in the job, the woman uh, who becomes the night watchman takes on a wife. This, this Fraulein that is found on the train becomes her stand-in wife and helps take care of her children. And to me, that is curious because it, it's just a recreation of the same thing again. Like, as there is no real route out of the uh, pressures of poverty that they are in, but also the restrictive uh, social structures that patriarchy has offered them or heteronormativity has offered them as a family. And 
that the, the good woman also in some ways has to, you know, hide herself, but, but struggles with it. And I, also, I guess that's, there's something interesting there too, because in, in the short story, you get the impression that the night watchman enjoys being the night watchman. This is a, uh, uh, I don't, I don't know if I want to call it like an early trans kind of narrative, but there is something about the inhabiting of the body. Like I was saying earlier about the learning how to do the walk and the kind of enjoyment of it. Uh, there is a part in the story where uh, they're taken to a hospital and they're horrified when they wake up and they realize they've been taken to a woman's hospital and, and blush and feel embarrassed when they approach another woman who is partially dressed in recognition of the irresponsibility and improperness of a man seeing her like that, even though this woman, you know, Frau Hausmann, uh, is is herself. And and so the the good woman at the end, uh, Shante, when she's she's revealing herself, does not feel the same way. There is this divergence. It does not want to live in that tension or to be her cousin anymore and yet the night watchman kind of does i think it's kind of interesting the differences in how like how these characters are classed um mm. shantae's has a lot of like sway and and influence with um the poor while as shui ta is sort of like influential among the upper class and i think he's about to be made justice of the peace or something he's on the chamber of commerce or or whatever, and like, in order to do that, he has to exploit people. Whereas the night watch person mm -hmm. doesn't have to exploit anyone; they're just doing a job. And well, are they guarding property, though? Yeah, I mean that's that's fair. <laughs> yeah. So they're a cop, which I mean might take us down a completely different road, right? And they are, themselves are being exploited for money once yeah. they get found out for their. Uh, ruse. That's the I think cuts to what you were really saying. What you were saying the, in a better way, I guess. That, the more direct. That that, that that one is is an exploiter, and the other one is arguably maybe mm. being exploited, although is somewhere in the in that system. In that, I think with with Shintae, like her new like her kind of gender performance is based on exploitation, like that's sort of how her cousin was introduced is as mm -hmm. this sort of mm. um no nonsense like sir topham hat yeah kind of character yeah a question i return to is whether or not it is an effective denaturalization of gender or to what effect i want to read brecht in good faith that there is a desire for uh revealing some of the material violence of these kinds of cultural and social structures. But neither of these women really end up much more empowered than where they were at the beginning of their stories. And that feels actually like a reflection of the regular world that, that we live in, rather than just challenging the way that gender functions. And I don't know, like I, 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 again, I want to believe that Brecht can be read at any time, but sometimes, and these two stories in particular about a kind of cross-dressing or inhabiting of another gender in order to access power feels uh, 
not as modern as I, I would like. And maybe that's why I asked questions about how would I stage this? Or how would the kind of person that plays these roles or the other kinds of uh, denaturalization approaches that you might use, whether it's signage or costume or whatever, staging uh, movement would help accentuate that rather than just the text alone. I don't know if that's a wholehearted critique, but it is something that I continue to, to think about. Brecht in general, and these just two stories bring it up for me a lot. I'm even thinking now about different identity axioms that could be picked up instead of gender, like political mm-hmm. identity, or like other kinds of, uh, maybe instead of thinking about cross-dressing, like a wolf in sheep's clothing, or just like other other kind of power plays that could be manifested through character swapping. But again, the staging choices would make a huge difference to me. Because um, I don't really just want to see like a Republican and a Democrat like trade places, right? But if they were actually like animals, like imagine... Because they're the same person, but that's Well, not, yeah, right. I mean, but, but like, but imagine if there mm-hmm. was like a, a rhinoceros and an elephant having to pretend to be the other. Like that, that that's when we start mm-hmm. to get into my weird performance art aesthetic, but also pushing the audience to make sense of some dif- different, like, de- denaturalization or disassociation. Maybe, like, race or someone from a, a sweatshop in Nigeria, like, embodies uh, a successful CEO or... Um... Well, that's actually why I think Matt's connection with the movie Trading Places is pretty spot on, and I had not thought about that before. Because that... This this Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy swap that happens is is such a class jump, but it's also very much about race mm. and perceptions of cleanliness and uh, perceived value in a way that I think the sort of sweatshop worker and a corporate CEO might we might see something similar there. Um, absolutely. Any potential producers out there listening uh, to this, uh, <laughs> just remember that you need to credit us if you end up um, doing rhinos to what were you, what was the rhinos elephants, and elephants, rhinos and whatever. elephants, uh, or uh, sweatshop workers and Wall Street executives. All of that uh, you need to to acknowledge um, Solidarity House and uh, its participants. Official copyright. <laughs> trademark communist copyright is that really what we're going for copy left a little bit of copy left going on here the job or by the sweat of thy brow shalt thou fail to earn thy bread in the decades after the great war unemployment and the oppression of the lower orders went from bad to worse an incident which took place in maine's shows better than any peace treaty, history book, or statistical table, the barbaric condition to which the great European countries had been reduced by their inability to keep their economies going except by force and exploitation. One day in 1927, a poverty-stricken family in Breslau called Hausmann, consisting of husband, wife, and two small children, received a letter from a former workmate of Hausman's offering him his job, 
a position of trust which he was giving up because of a small legacy in Brooklyn. The letter caused feverish excitement in the family, which three years of unemployment had brought to the verge of desperation. The man, who was down with pneumonia, rose at once from his sick bed, asked his wife to put a few essentials in his old case and several cardboard boxes, took his children by the hand, told his wife how she was to close down their miserable home, and in spite of his weakened condition, went to the station. He hoped that, whatever happened, taking the children with him would confront his friend with a fait accompli. Slumped in his compartment with a high fever, he was glad to let a young fellow traveler, a housemaid who had been sacked and was on her way to Berlin, take care of his children, supposing him to be a widower. She even bought them a few little things that she paid for out of her own money. In Berlin, his condition was so bad that he had to be taken almost unconscious to hospital. There he died five hours later. The housemaid, a certain Fräulein Liebner, had not foreseen this eventuality, so she had not left the children but taken them with her to cheap lodgings. She had paid all sorts of expenses for the dead man and his children, and she was sorry for the helpless little mites. So, without due consideration, perhaps, for it would doubtless have been better to send word to Frau Hausmann, asking her to come, she went back to Breslau the same evening with the children. Frau Hausmann took the news with the terrible blank placidity that you sometimes find in people who have long forgotten what a peaceful, normal existence is like. For the whole of the next day, the two women were busy buying cheap morning clothes on higher purchase. Meanwhile, they set about clearing out the house, though this now, of course, made no sense at all. Standing in the empty rooms, laden with cases and cardboard boxes, the woman was struck just before their departure by a terrible thought. The job which was lost when she lost her husband had not been out of her mind for a minute. The only thing that mattered was to salvage it at all costs. Fate could not be expected to make such an offer a second time. At the last moment, she adopted a plan that was as bold as her situation was desperate. She aimed to stand in for her husband and take the job as night watchman, for that is what it was, disguised as a man. No sooner had she settled this in her own mind than she tore the black rags from her body, undid the cord of the suitcase, and pulled out her husband's Sunday suit, clumsily put it on before her children's eyes, and with the help of her newfound friend, who had almost instantaneously understood what she was up to. Thus, it was a new family that traveled to Mainz to renew the assault on the promised job, and one that consisted of no more mouths than before. Even so do fresh recruits fill the gaps caused by gunfire in the ranks of decimated battalions. The date by which the current holder of the job had to join his ship in Hamburg did not permit the women to leave the train at Berlin for Hausmann's funeral. While he was being moved, unaccompanied, from the hospital to be lowered into his grave, his wife was being shown round the factory in his very clothes, with his papers in her pocket, by his former workmate, with whom she had quickly come to an arrangement. She had spent an extra day in the workmate's flat, all this incidentally in front of the children, 
practicing her husband's walk, his way of sitting and eating, and his manner of speech under the eyes of his workmate and her new friend. Little time elapsed between the moment when Houseman was committed to the grave and the moment when she took the promised job. Brought back to life, that is to say, to the process of production. By a combination of fortune and fate, the two women led their new life in the most orderly and circumspect fashion as Hare and Frau Hausmann with their children. The job of night watchman in a big factory is not undemanding. The nightly round of the yards, workshops, and stores calls for reliability and courage, qualities that have from time immemorial been called manly. The fact that Houseman's widow was equal to these demands, she even received a public commendation from the management for having caught and secured a thief, a poor devil who was trying to steal some wood, proves that courage, physical strength, and presence of mind can be shown by anybody, man or woman, who really needs a job. In a few days, the woman became a man, in the same way as men have become men over the millennia, through the production process. For four years, the little family with its growing children lived in relative security, while all around them unemployment increased. Thus far, the houseman's domestic situation aroused no suspicion in the neighborhood, but then came an incident which had to be smoothed over. The caretaker of the block often sat in the houseman's flat of an evening. The three of them played cards. The night watchman sat there with legs apart, in shirt sleeves, a tankard of beer in front of her, a pitcher later to be given prominence in the illustrated magazines. Then the night watchman went on duty, leaving the caretaker sitting with the young wife. Intimacy was unavoidable. Now, whether Fräulein Liedner let the cat out of the bag, or whether the caretaker saw the nightman changing through the half-open door, suffice it to say that a point came when the housemans began to have trouble. He was a drinking man whose job provided him with a free flat, but not much else, and from then on they had to make payments to him. Things got particularly difficult when the neighbors began to notice Hasse's, that was his name, visits to the houseman flat, and Frau Hausmann's habit of taking leftovers and bottles of beer to the caretaker's office became a subject of gossip in the neighborhood. Rumors about the night watchman's indifference to the indecent going-ons in his flat even reached the factory and for a time shook the management's confidence in him. The three were forced to stage a break in their friendship for public consumption. Of course, however, the caretaker's exploitation of the two women did not stop, but it got even worse. An accident at the factory put an end to the whole thing and brought the catastrophic affair to a conclusion. When one of the boilers blew up one night, the night watchman was injured, not seriously, but badly enough to be carried away unconscious. When Frau Hausmann woke up, she found herself in a hospital for women. She was unspeakably outraged. With wounds in her legs and back, swathed in bandages, racked by nausea, but gripped by a fear even greater than could be caused by wounds, whose full extent she did not know, she dragged herself through a ward full of sleeping women patients to the head nurse. Before the nurse could say a word, 
she was still dressing, and grotesque as it may seem, the spurious night watchman had to overcome her acquired embarrassment at seeing a partially dressed woman, something only permitted to members of the same sex. Frau Hausmann overwhelmed her with pleas not to report the disastrous state of affairs to the management. It was not without pity that the sister told the desperate woman, who twice fainted but insisted on going on with the interview, that the papers had already gone to the factory. What she did not tell her was that the incredible story had also gone through the town like a brush fire. The hospital released Frau Hausmann in men's clothes. She came home in the morning and from noon on the whole quarter gathered in the hall and on the pavement outside to wait for the male impersonator. That evening, the police took the unfortunate woman into custody to put an end to the uproar. She was still in men's clothes when she got into the car. She no longer had anything else. She continued to fight for her job while in custody, needless to say, without success. It was given to one of the countless thousands waiting for any vacancy, one whose legs chanced to have between them the organ recorded on his birth certificate. Frau Hausmann, who cannot be accused of leaving any stone unturned, is thought to have worked as a waitress in a suburban bar amid photographs, some of which she had posed for after being found out, showing her in shirt sleeves playing cards and drinking beer as a night watchman, and to have been regarded as resident freak by the skittle players. Thereafter, she probably sank without trace into the ranks of that army of millions who are forced to earn their modest bread by selling themselves, wholly or in part, or to one another, shedding in a few days century-old habits, which had almost seemed eternal and, as we have seen, even changing sex, generally without success, who are in short lost, and if we are to believe the prevailing view, lost forever. like this content, please help us keep it free by supporting us at patreon.com slash solidarityhouse. That's patreon.com slash solidarityhouse.